Danny and I both come from a bit of a background in design research for myself. I've been a product manager and a designer and design researcher in many different capacities over the years. And then Danny has also been a design researcher, ethnographer, sociologist, all sorts of different things. And over the course of our practice, working especially on sort of socially relevant issues and trying to figure out what is the best way that we can do design research, we both found that design research doesn't necessarily always meet its intended purposes or align with its ideal values, uh, where we want participants to be able to feel that they have a sense of ownership over the design object that's produced. We want to feel that their perspectives are being properly represented in the research itself. And over the years, we found that design research has constantly come up with many different ways of talking about how to do this, whether it's just like designing with or other sorts of things like that. And yet we still don't see that it's aligned with its ideal values. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about some of our own experiences in trying to achieve that. And in some cases, finding success, in some cases, finding that we still ran into roadblocks. You're listening to the AIGA Design Podcast. I'm Lee Sean Huang. The voice you heard at the top of the episode belongs to Humphrey Obobi, a design researcher based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Humphrey, together with our other guest, Danny Spitzberg, who's also a Bay Area design researcher, recently published a piece on AIGA.org about why they think design research is stuck and a gap that they've identified in personal and professional learning. I had Humphrey and Danny join me in AIGA's virtual online studio to discuss their article, which we'll link to in the show notes. Now here's Danny Spitzberg introducing himself and giving a bit more context about their piece. Humphrey and I have both been in this field for about a decade, plus or minus, doing design, design research, and have seen a number of instances of a number of catchphrases, like design with, not for, which has been around for at least, again, about a decade or more, since blogging was uh, a way that people would circulate things as opposed to academic literature. And I think that starts to hint at why we wanted to have this conversation, because we saw things repeated in somewhat simpler, more lightweight things like tweets, again and again without going deeper. The same our catchphrase by nature is just that. A tweet is, you know, used to be limited to a certain number of characters. And we come from also a bunch of other experiences where you have to dig into theory or literature or really complex subject matter or cultural and social traditions that go back hundreds of thousands of years, depending, which may sound a little cute, but is really heavy and serious. And the catchphrases really fall short from what I just mentioned. And so to the practices amongst our peers seem to be staying at that same level, I won't say shallow, but staying at a certain depth. So we, we wrote a piece together that was a conversation between us about why design projects fail to deliver on those promises of those catchphrases. And we look at a few different areas around community-specific practices or you know engaged design work. There's a whole lot of different ways, participatory, action-based, what have you. And we also talked about in, in our piece a few of the different phrases and frameworks also that come and go. The language may change, but some of the frameworks keep reemerging about how to hold relationships, how to create a container, how to have a process that people can trust in. Another great phrase, trust the process. 
And specifically, I'll, I'll end by saying we really look to folks in the care professions, in social work and other allied areas, where there's licensing, and credentialing, and certification, and peer support that's open, versus in the design fields where you might have this firm competing against that firm, or this solo practitioner against that, who have to compete and have to hold their intellectual property tight. So there's a lot of, let's say, structural and ethical advantages in the care professions that we can learn from. And that might be a way out of this sort of uh, repeated catchphrase use, this continued plateau that we have of how deep things go or not in terms of the, the practice behind those phrases. Danny, your response has me thinking about the purpose of some of these catchphrases that you've mentioned, like the big one, design with, not for, which I've definitely used myself when I was running my studio. One of the purposes for these catchphrases is simply marketing, right? They often work as branded taglines for a studio or a consultancy. It's part of your branding. It's it's a vibe. Then there's also a client management aspect of certain catchphrases and language use. Maybe your studio is selling a specific method, maybe even a proprietary method. So these are the steps in your process. It can be your remix of design thinking or some other branded language about how you approach your work. And so when you say something like, let's get started with discovery or let's get started with empathy and then move into concepting, ideation or whatever specific language you use, it's a way to help your clients feel like there's some sort of method behind the madness, right? It's grounding. It's milestones to make sense of an inherently messy creative process. So it can also be a bit aspirational or motivational in that regard, this kind of catchphrase language. Any thoughts on this, Humphrey? I think there was definitely a lot to what you just said of like, there are many, many different ways of, I suppose, motivating this kind of shift in the design practice, right? Whether it's really just a client management thing or whether it's like a more equity-oriented perspective, right? Overall, I'd say that the intentions are usually, at least like these days, the intentions are usually quite pure, right? That we are starting to acknowledge that many people have been marginalized and have been excluded from the design practice, which whether you're talking about design as a product designer, as a graphic designer, as a service designer, people have been excluded from the practice of the decisions that affect their daily lives and the products and the services and the infrastructures that guide their lives. People have been excluded from that for ages, and we can trace the increase in our consciousness, I suppose, of that reality. And so I'd say that, the again, the intentions are quite pure, but I think it's it's very easy to fall into the trap of painting participation as just like a checkbox or just as another part of the process or things like that. Like it's almost like putting lipstick on a pig in many cases where you just said, okay, well, we invited some people in, we talked to them, we listened to them, and then we kept on going. Design that way, design research in that way is naturally participatory in, in some ways, but in terms of people actually feeling a sense of ownership over the process, in terms of the accountability to the people that you then just talked to, and in terms of the actual interpretation of what they've just said and what they've contributed in terms of perspectives and creative ideas, all of that actually requires a much more intentional process than just inviting them in and being done with it, right? I think that actually comes back to a little bit of what Danny had mentioned of just 
the different backgrounds that we come from as designers, but yes, but also as researchers, as people who have actually delved into the literature on some of these things and have understood that from these many different perspectives, there are actually these concrete methodologies that we can use in order to better empower the people that we're working with in order to consider our positionality and really be in proper dialogue with them as opposed to extracting from them. There are things like that that we can then actually work on and also acknowledging that this is an evolving practice, right? That it's not something that we as Danny and Humphrey and the cadre of other people who think about equity-centered design um, or whatever you want to call it, co-design, community-centered design, many different words for it these days, we're not the gatekeepers of how to do this work. In fact, we ourselves are constantly learning through our experiences how to do this work better and in a way that is more aligned with our values. And I think that's something that we also start to explore in the piece is what are some of the experiences that we have gone through that then inform the new practices that we're trying to implement. Until the users hire us directly, as researchers, we do not work for them. We work for the company, whether it's the big company or the vendor, or the firm, the agency that they recruit. I wanted to offer a neat case in point, maybe a bit of a, a little factoid also to help ground this, which is, for example, focus groups. One of my favorite points about focus groups is that they have a pretty tacky reputation. They're not seen as wonderful uh, liberatory spaces. Uh, and I think that from what I understand, it comes really mainly from the 80s and around then 70s and 80s in the US where a lot of people would go to focus groups to make a little extra money. And they would show up and you see a lot of that now with user testing platforms. People show up and they'll say whatever it takes to make 50, 100, a few hundred dollars even, let alone a few. And take the survey, do the do the call. But when focus groups were initially developed around the you know, 1930s, they were intentionally created as spaces for people to figure things out on their own. And the facilitator was very, in a really true sense of the word, someone to just enable them to discuss things. It was a bit subversive, actually. It wasn't a tool of marketing yet. It was a tool of social science at the time for folks to think things through in dialogue with each other and then maybe come up with some ideas, maybe decide together to pursue those ideas. And that's, I think, to tie with what Humphrey says, really crucial because we're not just calling recruitment for a customer interview or a shadowing someone opportunity or a, a house of business and having the washing machine looks. We're not just calling any of that participation, you know, just using new language. What we ought to be doing is trying to flip the power dynamic all the way back to like, for example, with focus groups where we are bringing together people to decide things on their own and to maybe have a lever of power that we as the vendor for a client are either unable or unwilling to give them access to. And especially if we work for the, the client, if we work on, you know, in-house we're certainly scared, uh, uh, unless we're like high up in leadership, of giving people on the so-called end user, have that phrase in a while, <laughs> to giving them access to the budgets, the schedules, 
the data, you know, there's a lot of corporate uh, structures and hierarchies that prevent us from having folks who we would like to, quote, have participation with actually take over power and control uh, in a way that might serve them in the medium and long term. Building on what you were saying about flipping these power dynamics, Danny, I'd love to explore both of your previous work or some illustrative examples of your previous work on this hybrid approach that both of you take in your own ways, design research with community engagement, community organizing in ways that do address power in design. So why don't we go back to Humphrey to tackle this one? And Danny, I'd love to learn more about uh, some of your work in a bit. Humphrey, you've worked on a project for San Francisco reparations. Can you tell us more about that and what you've learned from that project? Yeah, absolutely. And I can start a little bit by talking a little bit about San Francisco reparations in general, which basically started in February of 2020. So just before the pandemic lockdowns and otherwise. So that informs a little bit of how the process itself went. Basically, it started in February 2020 when one of the board of supervisors members, Shimon Walton, started a resolution to basically establish a task force that would then create this plan for reparations in the city. And frequently when we think about reparations or racial injustices or otherwise throughout the country, we typically think about things like slavery or um, Jim Crow era or other forms of discrimination that have occurred over the centuries. And sometimes people think, oh, well, California and San Francisco, like they're liberal, like they never did anything wrong. Absolutely wrong. There are many centuries of discrimination structurally that have caused the black the state of black central resistance to decline over the course of the last couple decades and longer, whether we're talking about redlining and the lack of access to housing and other financial instruments, or whether we're talking about the active destruction of the Fillmore district in, I believe, the 50s or so. And so many, many cases similar to that. I'd say when I saw that this was happening, this was something that me as a black San Franciscan, maybe not born and raised here, but still someone who cares about the issue, wanted to get involved and support it in some way or another. But again, being aware that I'm not necessarily a black San Franciscan in the same way that many of the people that this effort is meant to serve are. Like I moved here to the Bay Area maybe about five years ago. I am part of an industry or at least at the time, was part of an industry that actually contributed to a lot of the displacements and gentrification of some of those same neighborhoods and things like that. And so I had to be very much aware of my own sort of positionality and entering that kind of work rather than going and saying, I have lots of skills and ideas I'm going to like dump on all of you. Rather, I think it was much more of an effort of what are the concrete things that I can offer that will actually help the things that you are trying to do, right? And so I actually had reached out to one of the main people within the city who was helping to coordinate the effort, who actually happens to be a friend of Danny and I's, so hi, Joel. And so I had reached out to her and she was like, hey, like we actually need help with branding and communication design right now to help spread the word about the survey that we're trying to put out there to get the opinions of many Black San Franciscans throughout the city. And so that was the main thing that I had helped with at the beginning was just creating the branding, creating some of the merch, creating bus ads and things like that that were 
actively contributing to that effort. And when I wanted to get further involved, then it wasn't, again, it wasn't necessarily a thing of, I'm going to go do my research and come back, but rather I embedded myself effectively as an organizer, just like consistently held space for people who were trying to talk about some of the housing focused injustices and helped facilitate conversations with many of the the people who have lived in the city for decades about some of the issues that they'd witnessed, whether it was related to public housing, whether it was related to home ownership, whether it was related to the fact that people were actively displaced from the Fillmore district back in that time. And so in talking through all of that, we were able to come up with a set of demands really that eventually made its way into the San Francisco reparations final report. And so really, I think a lot of it was just about how can I be helpful? How can I just consistently be there? Right? Like not that I'm coming in here and just saying, Oh, like, what do you need? Like I can provide a service and then I'm dipping out. No, like I'm going to consistently be there and be a present and build relationships with the people that I'm working with. And then also, working at the pace that naturally emerges from that kind of work. As designers, we're frequently working on accelerated timelines and working in (laughs) accordance with the budgets that we have and whatever else. And this kind of organizing work really just requires being patient and being willing to work at the pace of the community in a way that actually will come up with something beautiful on the other end. But you can't be rushed. That sounds like the exact opposite of some of the move fast and break things ethos of some of the tech industry. Yeah. (laughs) Humphrey, thanks for sharing a bit of context and some of your learnings around San Francisco reparations. I'd love to go back in time and learn a little bit more of how you got into design and a little bit more about your background. So I think my initial introduction to design was actually through more of like thinking about design thinking actually in an engineering context. So my degree is in bioengineering and electrical engineering and a little bit of computer science. (laughs) Um, And so that background is where I initially started learning about the process of design thinking and whatnot. And this is an interesting time for me to be thinking about this question just because it's the start of the year and I have a regular practice of just going back through my previous yearly reflections and thinking like, oh, like, what did I think about the past year? What was I resolving to do? Whatever, whatever. And looking back at my 2019, 2020 reflection, I actually found that I had this idea that I really wanted to get like civically engaged, quote unquote, for some time now. I grew up in a place where being politically active wasn't really much of a thing. And over the course of college, maybe I started getting a little bit more socially and politically conscious. But when I first landed in San Francisco and was starting to get to know the place better, and it was a place that I really wanted to call home, I wanted to get more deeply involved. I'd started doing a little bit of reflection on, for example, the role of technology and misinformation and things like that, but it still wasn't grounded in place. I was originally working at Google as a product manager, and then around 2020 was when I started to make that transition by working at a place called Recidivis, which basically uses data and technology to advance criminal justice reforms and hopefully reduce the size of the U.S. criminal justice system and the U.S. prison population. And so 
working on that, I started to get much more familiar with criminal justice policy at a like higher level and also at a much more almost like operational level, like thinking about what are the like specific administrative policies that determines when a person might be released early or determines some of the rules and regulations around parole or things like that. And so I started getting much more aware of these things, but it was really the summer of 2020 that started to ground those things in place for me during the Black Lives Matter protests. And otherwise, I was there out on the streets protesting, networking with abolition organizers like in the city, things like that, that really started to make these things real for me in the place that I lived. And so that was probably a turning point in my view of myself as not just a designer and product manager, but also as a member of my community, as a person who can potentially use some of those same skills around design to advance causes of uh, social justice where I live. And then starting to think more specifically about, okay, I've learned about design in a, a particular context that is within the context of designing technology, frequently in a for-profit context, now more in a non-profit context. But what does that look like when it's actually being used to directly serve the people that I live around and the community that I live with, right? And so that is a totally different kind of mentality and a totally different kind of method that needs to be intentionally applied, right? And so I think that's a lot of how that shift started to happen for me. Over time, I started to get more deeply involved in community organizing in the city. Uh, I would work with with a bunch of other organizers when the conditions in the Tenderloin were starting to come up on the mayor's radar. And we started to think about what is a like public health oriented approach to resolving like issues of homelessness and drug use in that neighborhood. So things like that started to emerge, things like the reparations efforts started to come up. And from there, I just started getting more and more involved in organizing in the city. Humphrey, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your story. I want to turn back to Danny now. Danny, you also have a professional background that is steeped in community. You've worked with ride hail drivers who were organizing a union. You have worked with an organization called the Workers Algorithmic Observatory. What are some lessons or themes that you can draw from those experiences at the intersection of design and organizing and labor? Similar to Humphrey, the start of the new year, I identified a few areas of semi-serious study that I want to look at. One that I've tried in the past to put time into, to be specific, is around assimilation. And that process, in other words, to be really concrete, becoming white culturally, ethnically in particular, as well as adopting other practices like Humphrey mentioned, when we work in different industries that have a, a set of incentives and a set of duties, whether they're good or not, we start to adopt and even maybe internalize those too. So thinking about assimilation is really helpful to look backwards and forwards at a bunch of these experiences I've had. And in the piece we have this q and I'm really glad we spent a lot of time, relatively speaking, most pieces rarely, if at all, talk about anything about biography or upbringing. But we talked about, for my part at least, similar to Humphrey, I was born and raised in Boston, which is a predominantly white 
structurally speaking city, although it's very diverse, very segregated. And my school was majority folks from Egypt and Morocco and Iran, Iraq, Syria, and then France and Russia and, and Israel and a whole lot of other places where I had to later in life realize, oh, a lot of us, maybe at least half of us were not white as such, but we were all becoming white through that school and through that context and through this process of assimilation. And I'll tie on another concept of ambition or achievement or something like that, you know, wanting to succeed in professional endeavors. So I believe designers have a duty to enable users or community members or anyone else to take control of their lives and to take control of what's being offered to them to some degree, maybe even transition the entire organization to community ownership. That's, I think I believe, and I think that is alongside assimilation, maybe a reverse course. My training briefly was in sociology and a bunch of other places and aerospace, and then eventually in campaigning and user research to talk about this experience with ride hail drivers in California who are organizing for better conditions, for better respect. A lot of them didn't actually care so much about the wages as much as they cared about being treated fairly. I'll quickly position it in a kind of middle path where a lot of folks get critiqued in the design and technology and software worlds as over-enthusiastic, trying to help, and not really listening to constructive criticism. Or if they do, it's just to course correct on the same path to being someone who can help and offer and then profit. That's real. But we also have to point out some folks who we see in organizing spaces and other spaces, maybe faith-based organizing, for example, where it's very overly cautious. People do not want to interfere. They do want to not get involved. They don't want to be responsible. I've heard colleagues who say, I'm not an organizer because I don't want to be responsible for other people's outcomes, which is, I think, a missed opportunity to do something powerful. But nonetheless, in the middle between the over-enthusiasts and the overly cautious, I think Humphrey and I find ourselves trying to show up and form accountable relationships. That's really involved and really complex. Involves trying to calculate risks. Every organizer that I know that's really self-aware, whether it's labor organizing, community organizing, broader structural efforts like reparations, you have to calculate risks that you are asking other people to take. So then with this ride hail driver project, we were a small group in San Francisco, maybe a half dozen people were renting a space in a part of downtown where drivers could come. All kinds of people were showing up on a regular basis, but in particular drivers on Thursdays were holding meetings there for free because we had the space, we had tables and chairs, we had a projector, a lot of other events were happening, like I said, and over six months or a year, eventually helping them take notes, use the projector, get a snack, use the restroom. We got to a place where it was clear they could benefit from some specific tactical measures like demanding wage claims. And Humphrey mentioned having demands, which is not something that anyone in the product development or commercial enterprise often thinks about. Think about demanding, it's usually like, oh, that person's you know, overbearing. But the demand was that they should get their wages paid back that Uber and Lyft were not paying them. And we held space, like I said, for, for a long time. We realized indeed that this intervention could work given the change in employment law for the state of California and the statute of limitations, meaning three years. 
of back pay could be owed to them. And I'll save it for the piece. You can figure out, uh, you know, the goods, I guess, are how we approached that, how we turned a mess of paperwork that takes several hours in person with a legal aid worker into a quick little web app for 15 minutes. But it was that piece that I wanted to take all the way back from trying to figure out how are we being assimilated to think against community organizing and being responsible for others to how might we show up in accountable relationships and bring our technical skill and our professional acumen that we worked hard to earn and make that of use to others if and only if they think it's beneficial because we can contribute as people with this kind of background and experience and we don't have to replace what people could do for themselves. We can add to it. I really appreciate both of you sharing your professional and personal histories that have shaped your points of view as design researchers and practitioners. I want to turn back to some of the core themes in your piece, and in particular, back to this catchphrase from earlier, design with, not for. What can we do to make use of this catchphrase as a starting point but actually go deeper? How can we make something like co-design really live up to a more radical transformational promise? For better or for worse, we've worked in design for around a decade, like I mentioned. And so our perspective on those catchphrases and the practices related to them is also a perspective on what are the standards or the typical approaches people have. And also, thankfully, given a little bit of time, some creative alternatives, some adjustments people have made. And I think we also have some opinions about what we should sustain for those practices and what we should let go. Letting go is certainly a complex set of emotional and psychological like duties. And with the phrase of design with, not for, for example, just to lay out some basics, we've seen peers give keynote talks at conferences where they introduce that phrase, design without floor, as the big takeaway. I've seen, I think it was 2022, I saw a keynote where someone had the, all the slides were copyright and their intellectual property. And you have to ask, why is that? Why aren't people reading each other's materials or watching each other's talks or maybe even searching it out and asking, has anyone else come up with this before? There's many, many reasons why, but I think a single area of those reasons is in the differences between training that designers typically have, design researchers even as well, as part of a more applied practice or a craft, and the training that other people who end up in the same work come from with more theoretical or more analytical training with a heavier emphasis on literature and publishing and peer review, and especially, and this is where you also find professional degrees come in too, especially also an openness to critique and a desire to try to gain from feedback from peers, an emphasis on peers, not competitors. So yes, I think there's fresh perspective to be gained in revisiting these phrases. And I believe only if we can go deeper into them and build on them, where I find areas for your fresh perspective is mostly in the care professions social work, licensed therapy, not this modern, weird, emerging thing of coaching and spiritual direction and having a kind of ethos that you sell to people per hour in cohorts. I think 
where there are serious professions that are responsible for literally and you know metaphorically caring for people that's a fantastic domain for design with not for and this goes back to many decades in medicine too the patient doctor partnership was a big turn in the 70s or 80s that now is commonplace and people expect their doctor to be their partner and vice versa often I want to pull the thread that you started to talk about, Danny, about learning. And your piece addresses this as well, about these learning gaps that you've identified, especially for design researchers. Both of you come from pretty unique interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary backgrounds, maybe more nonlinear career progressions. And so, yeah, for either of you, tell me more about these gaps that you've identified in learning and how can we start to address them? Let me zoom in and focus on user research or user experience research and how people are learning the skills and strategies to do that work. That to me is a relatively extreme case that can teach us a lot, no pun, about where people are teaching and learning and teaching. Because unlike design, product management, market research, and a variety of other adjacent fields, user experience work and special user experience research does not have learning pathways, boot camps, academic programs or accredited programs of any kind. There are a handful of online courses. There are all kinds of materials you can download for $99. There's people who will sell you their time for money. But relative to those other fields, user experience research is very fair and sparse and lax institutions that are widely recognized. That's okay. I'm not making a value judgment. There's a lot of innovation, let's call it, and new ways of learning. But I think support from institutions of all kinds, whether it's formal, literal, academic, or accredited program, or just broadly speaking, like what AIGA offers, a organization that supports a network of people doing all kinds of things, or even more abstractly, where there's a field that people can self-identify with. So many user researchers I know have, like myself, a second title that say, I'm a sociologist and a user researcher. I'm a user researcher and a storyteller, or so on and so on. So that lack of institutional learning, combined with the fact that most folks are doing design research, now to bring it back to this field, with let's call it corporate constraints, where all of what we learn and all of what we share and all of our materials and methods and colleagues and outcomes are relatively tied down under NDA or other privacy requirements. It's really hard to share and learn with our peers across the field. So those are issues related specifically to user research, maybe a little more broadly to design research. And when it comes to asking, well, where might we close the gap between these individual learning paths from company to company to company to a field that learns more broadly and more interconnectedly? Well, at least we know the problem so far. <laughs> I think we'll have to work a little harder as a field to pull ourselves together and to think of some of the solutions to that, that set of problems. Turning back to you, Humphrey, in the published piece, you use this phrasing of an open secret of learning that happens among peers. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Yeah. In answering your question, I think I'll talk a little bit about like my own design education. It was basically just very all over the place. 
I was probably first introduced to design through IDEO, the organization slash corporation that in many ways owns the sense of design thinking that a lot of people have. Now it's spread out a little bit more, but they were probably one of the vanguards and really evangelizing the idea of design thinking and design research and things like that. And then through that, I think there was a network of different peers that then taught me a little bit more about how that all that applies into technology and user experience design. There was future articles and like Daniel mentioned before, blog posts and things like that, that started to organize this idea of how does all, how do all of these principles then get applied within different domains? So again, it was very informal. And I think that's a, honestly a problem that we have to face eventually where we don't really have, at least like within this particular practice of user experience design, service design, things like that. We don't really have like a firm institution that is determining here are some of the standards that we as practitioners in this field are supposed to follow, right? There's no real Hippocratic oath. There's no real board that is sort of governing some of the decisions that we make or giving us like some guidelines by which we're supposed to conduct our practice. So eventually we just kind of form these ideas of how the field evolves. And I think honestly, that is a natural way for a field to evolve over time, but it does need a little bit more. There does need to be a little bit more concentrated discourse in some way around how we can advance the practice towards more community-based or more accountable ways of conducting this. I'd say that like ever since starting graduate school, which as a general note, I started graduate school at UC Berkeley studying public policy fairly recently. And in that context, I'm starting to see a little bit more just by taking classes in different departments. So for example, hearing about like community-based health practices within the public health school, hearing about how planners, city planners in the College of Environmental Design might start to consider the use of these participatory methods. And so maybe through some of those teachers who may have a particular specialty, might have published some research on how these methods can be affected. That's how we're starting to see a little bit more evolution in this field, right? I think as those students then become practitioners and bring that into their various institutions, whether they're within public health agencies or hospitals or the city government or other levels of public service, that's how they start to spread that around. But again, it's not a particularly organized practice. <laughs> and I think we do need to think about how to make it a little bit more make standards around how we conduct this work. Humphrey, I want to follow up on another point that you made in the published piece, which is about the limitations and pitfalls that you've identified in designing for civic technology projects. And in particular, you point out that there's sometimes a relative lack of focus on actual impact, real impact. Tell us more about what you mean by that. As someone who is really interested in this intersection of design and technology and city governance and things like that, I think I've seen over the years that there are some people who are trying to work at that intersection, trying to sort of use technology for social good or trying to 
design for social good. There are many different iterations of that same idea that have emerged over time in parallel with a lot of what we've been talking about with designing with and designing for and things like that. Ironically, I'd say those two streams don't necessarily cross all the time. While we do have people who are genuinely trying to build things for, let's say, like improving access to public health services or a map of different resources that the community can use or things like that, they're not frequently designed in collaboration with many of the, let's say, organizers or the public care workers or the public servants who might have already been working on that for decades or longer, right? And in failing to sort of work in collaboration with them, sometimes things like that will sprout from the earth and then will quickly, quickly die because there wasn't attention paid to how that thing would be sustained because they didn't bother to do the proper research with the communities that are impacted by that same problem. And so what ends up happening is that you have a cool demo. You have a cool example of how technology can be used in this way or how we might design some kind of like intervention on the street or something like that. But because it's not really baked in with like any kind of ongoing sustainable social organization, then it dies. I think that's something that's worth paying attention to, right? Because if we do actually want to take a lot of the skills that we have and apply them towards improving the world around us, which I think is an ideal that probably many designers have and many technologists have and otherwise, then it requires being in deep relation with that world, right? Not just looking at the problem at a datafied level or a high level administrative level even, but really getting back into the social realities of those problems. Thank you for sharing those perspectives, Humphrey. I'm sure you've been learning a lot in your work, but also going back to school, as you mentioned earlier. So as many of our listeners will know, I like to wrap up our conversations with a question about more personal learning or learning in general. This is a question that I've been asking all of our guests recently, and that is, what is something that you've learned recently and how or why did you learn it? It can be a fact, a skill, an insight. It doesn't even have to be related to your core professional practice. Although I think for a lot of us designers and creative professionals, everything kind of cross-pollinates. So I can start with myself just to kick things off. I've been getting into fermenting food this year in 2024. I actually have some pickles fermenting in a jar, some sauerkraut on the shelf just off camera here. And since the pandemic, since moving into a house that actually has a yard, something that I've never had in my adult life as a big city person before this, I'm getting more into being connected with gardening and food production, growing my own food. I grew berries and herbs last season. And now that it's winter, I'm learning to ferment foods for preservation and also for the noms. So I find this food and gardening stuff a great counterbalance to the bulk of my work, which is very digital and computer based. Although it's funny because pretty much everything I learned about gardening and fermenting food has been from YouTube. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that actually does remind me that in moving to Oakland recently, I moved into an apartment that thankfully has like a little like community garden out back. And so I've been hoping to get a plot and actually learn how to do that. So I'll have to ask you about that. The thing that I've probably been learning in the last couple months has actually just been in 
getting a studio that is larger than what the like little shoebox that I was living in San Francisco earlier. <laughs> um, I actually have space to design the room around me in a way that is a little bit more harmonious with how I live and otherwise I'm like maybe even more aligned with like my aesthetics and things. And so I've been learning a lot more about like interior design in some way. I think maybe one of the things that has informed that new learning practice, I suppose, is a book called The Timeless Way of Building by Christopher Alexander. He used to be a professor at Berkeley where I'm going to school and had actually come up with this idea of a sort of pattern language of how we design the built environment to really resolve the different forces that guide our lives. So for example, he talks about like the idea of like a window place and how do you design a window place like the window also off camera that actually like allows you to, let's say like view the world around you and also like read a book and also like, let's say like host conversations like right around it. And so I think that framing has been really helpful for me as I'm trying to make sense of what I'm actually doing as I'm nesting in Oakland. (laughs) I'm learning to get comfortable with what I really do not know well enough. And that's showing up in two areas. One is Spanish. My dad's side of the family is all from Cuba for a few generations. And I'm trying to wrap up a short documentary about the Jewish impulse to visit Cuba and all the romanticizing that happens for a whole range of political ideologies. And my Spanish is just not good enough to do the subtitles. So I'm trying to learn that more. And I think it's really funny and also serious at the same time that a lot of us are touching food and gardens and other hands-on crafts as the other area besides our professional work. I think there's a lot of commentary there about modernity and what it means to have a full life. But I also have a new garden plot. reminding myself of what it means to take care of weeds and <laughs> differentiate how things are growing or not with a lot of elders who are all too eager to give advice. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, guys, and for coming on the show. You've been listening to Danny Spitzberg and Humphrey Obobi on the AIGA Design Podcast. Danny and Humphrey are both design researchers in the San Francisco Bay Area who recently published a piece on AIGA.org about why design research is stuck. You can read the article, we'll post a link in the show notes. Keep connected with Humphrey's work at Let's Studio, a creative practice dedicated to local community-powered social innovation. He encourages you to reach out at letstudio.org for collaborations and volunteering. And you can also stay connected with Danny's work at the Workers Algorithm Observatory, which helps workers and allies audit everyday algorithms and AI systems that we depend on, so we can demand concrete improvements and new standards for digital technologies. You can learn more about their reports and stay connected there. We'll post a link to both of their projects and other things that we've been talking about in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm Li Shan Huang. Until next time.